Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. We'll hear argument now in number 91744, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania, Bertha versus Robert P. Casey. 91902, Robert P. Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania. Ms. Colbert. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Whether our Constitution endows government with the Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. It has been just over a month since Politico published a leak of a draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the challenge to a Mississippi law that would ban almost all abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. The draft opinion by Justice Samuel Alito, and a reminder that it is only a draft at this point, would overturn the court's landmark opinions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey establishing and then reaffirming the constitutional right to an abortion. The court released its decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey 30 years ago this month. Joining us to look back at that ruling and to talk about some of the potential parallels to the Dobbs ruling is Catherine Colbert, who argued the case on behalf of Planned Parenthood. Kitty, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Amy. Thrilled to be here. So it's been 30 years since you argued Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I remember it well, but can you quickly summarize for some of our readers who may have been a little bit younger at the time, the questions before the court in that case? Well, that's a really interesting question because uh, we had asked for one question to be before the court, which is, is Roe versus Wade still the law of the land? Uh, But the court uh, uh, rejected that formulation and uh, set before them a series of questions about the constitutionality of a Pennsylvania statute that restricted abortion, it didn't ban it completely, but it placed a number of restrictions in form, what they, was, they used to call informed consent requirements, but basically bias counseling, 24 hour waiting period, parental consent uh, requirements for young women. And the, the probably the most onerous restriction was a requirement that married women notify their husbands of their abortion choice. So the Third Circuit largely upheld the restrictions in the Pennsylvania law. One minor detail that sometimes gets overlooked but is particularly interesting right now is that one of the judges on the Third Circuit panel in that case was then Judge Samuel Alito, and you argued the case in the Third Circuit. So what was that like? Well, he was, uh, you know, I don't remember exactly his particular uh, point of view at the argument, but clearly in his opinion, he made very clear that he did not approve of abortion. And he was the only judge on the panel to uphold the husband notification requirement, uh, which uh, at the time was very extreme, probably one of the most extreme types of restrictions on the books in different states. Um, So he made his views clear. I remember when he was nominated to the court and a variety of friends said, oh, well, he's great on criminal justice. You don't have to worry about this guy. He's he's fine. And I went, nope, he's not fine. He's really conservative on a whole host of issues. And he has, I think, as the years have passed, gotten more and more conservative and uh, adopted, at least in this draft opinion, a a true allegiance to the anti-abortion movement in a way that you didn't see 
in the uh, this, the concurring opinion in Casey? So this was, you know, the 1991, 1992, before the advent of the so-called Supreme Court bar. But Planned Parenthood filed its petition for Supreme Court review. Was there ever any question that you were going to be the one to argue it? Actually, I was uh, not planning to argue it initially. My co-counsel, Tom Zemitis, uh, and I had a deal. I argued uh, Thornburg versus ACOG, and the deal was if another case of ours ever went to the Supreme Court, it would be his turn. Uh, he took a job with a corporation right uh, when the case was about to go up, and so uh, was unable to continue to represent the clients. And I inherited the, the uh, I think, the auspicious role of arguing the case. At the time, we thought we were going to lose, so it didn't seem like such a uh, an honor. <laughs> and so, I guess now take us back to April of 1992 when you argued the case. What do you remember about the day? How did you approach the argument in terms of getting ready for it, moot courts, and then strategy? Okay, so let me do the strategy first okay. because the strategy really uh, flowed from the fact that. The Third Circuit issued its opinion three days or four days following the ascension of uh, Justice Thomas to the Supreme Court. So they were waiting for the court to change. They issued the opinion. Uh, they clearly believed that they were setting out uh, a new formulation of the abortion right, and they thought uh, that the court would buy that. But at the time, we actually thought there were five votes on the court to go much further, go essentially as far as the court has gone, or at least in the draft opinion uh, of Justice Alito. Um, so the bottom line is we thought we were going to lose. We thought this would be the case in which Roe was overturned. And we got there because obviously Justice Thomas was the fifth vote and, and Justice Kennedy had already voted against abortion in earlier cases. So our strategy really flowed from that. The question was, do you speed the case up and try to get a resolution by June of the following year in time to have that be a, an important issue in the 1992 political races, electoral races, particularly the presidency? Or do you slow it down so that more women are able to obtain abortions for a longer period of time? Our clients decided they wanted to go fast on the theory that our only option to win back the rights we expected to lose in Casey uh, was to get the question before the electorate in the 1992 uh, presidential election. Um, so we filed uh, a petition for cert in Casey I think within two and a half, maybe three weeks following the issuance of the Third Circuit opinion, that never happens. No. We, right? we asked one question, which is, is Roe versus Wade still the law of the land? Why? Because we were arguing the case as much in the court of public opinion as in the court itself. And there was a lot of very interesting procedural machinations by the court about uh, when they would hear the case. And Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time uh, kept, you know how the docket, the case comes up on the docket and they decide whether or not they, they're going to take it. Well, the chief kept flipping the case over docket after docket, week after week, refusing to take a vote on whether a cert would be granted. And interestingly, we found out later that uh, Justice Blackman and Justice Stevens threatened to file a dissenting opinion 
to the order holding the case over for review. Now, again, your audience was the only people who would appreciate that, but that was really striking. Never before had the justices been willing to go public about the fact that the chief was delaying consideration of the case. And uh, that threat meant he put it on the docket and the court uh, listed the case on the last day of argument in that term. And even, this is kind of a nerdy aside, but back in 1991, it wasn't like you could go online and look at the docket. That's right. Did you have reporters call you? Did you call the press office or the clerk's office to check on the status of the case? Well, we knew this, the status was the same because we never you know, heard that it was accepted. We fully expected that once a vote was taken, it would be accepted because it only took four justices to, to take a case and we had four justices. But yeah, it was it was an interesting a set of affairs. And really it went to, and w- later when we read Justice Blackman's papers, you could see the internal debate on the court about what's the appropriate way to proceed, go fast or go slow. All right, so then the day of the argument itself, what do you remember about the argument? And did you see anything in the argument that when you got the opinion, then we'll, we'll talk about the opinion in a few minutes, sort of you, you looked back and said to yourself, oh, I see where they were going in the argument. So let me tell you first about what I remember, which is I stood up to argue and there wasn't a single question by the court for I think seven minutes, which is an extraordinarily long period of time. Yes. So long that everybody in the courtroom kept whispering to each other going, when are they going to interrupt her? When are they going to interrupt her? Uh, it was very dramatic. It must have also been very distracting. Well, that was distract. The, the audience was distracting, but I actually had prepared for very few questions at the beginning because in my case that I argued in, in Thornburg in, in 86, my opposing counsel got up to make his argument and he hadn't prepared. The court asked him very few questions and it really threw him. So I prepared very assiduously to make sure I had enough to say, even if I got no questions. Now, seven minutes, that was longer than I expected. But nonetheless, I thought I would be uninterrupted for at least two or three. The second thing I remember was that our strategy was to continue to emphasize for the court that what was the issue, the central issue in the case being Roe versus Wade establishing a fundamental right to choose abortion, the highest standard of constitutional review. And we uh, suspected that Justice O'Connor would want to turn attention to a new standard, the undue burden test that she had advocated for in previous dissents, the undue burden test that the Court of Appeals had put forward. But our strategy was to continually come back to the importance of a fundamental right, the highest level of constitutional protection, and not get sucked into this argument of undue burden or rational basis, really just stick to if you change the status of of the abortion right, if you say it's no longer a fundamental right, that is an overturning of Roe. And I literally spent the entire, as much, as long of of the argument as I could, focusing on that until Justice O'Connor got very upset about that and really pinned me down to, to move on to the specific provisions. 
further the state's interest in potential life. Ms. Colbert, uh, you're arguing the case as though all we have before us is whether to apply stare decisis and preserve Roe against Wade and all its aspects. Nevertheless, we granted certiorari on some specific questions in this case. Do you plan to address any of those in your argument? Uh, Your Honor, I do. Uh, However, the central question in the case is what is the standard that this Court uses to evaluate the restrictions that are at at issue? And therefore, one cannot... The standard may affect the outcome, or it may not, but at bottom, we still have to deal with specific issues, and I wondered if you were going to address them. Uh, Yes, I am, Your Honor, and I would like in particular to address the husband notification provisions. But the standard that this Court applies will well establish the outcome in this case uh, for a variety of reasons. This Court has already found that under the principles of Roe versus Wade, the bulk of the Pennsylvania statute. So two other things that you addressed were two things that were at top of mind in the Dobbs argument, the idea of reliance, that a generation of women had come of age understanding that the Constitution protects the right to term or terminate a pregnancy, and then the principle of stare decisis, the idea that courts should not overturn their prior precedent unless there's a good reason to do so. And then here we were, did you, you know, listening to Julie Reichelman in Dobbs emphasizing those same things. Did you have this sense of deja vu all over again? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the interesting part was that most people think of the Casey decision as an abortion case only. But in many respects, it is a reaffirmation of stare decisis and a really strong articulation about the importance of the reliance interest. That is, when an individual, or or in this case, millions of individuals rely upon a ruling of the court, it takes on a a, a sense of super precedent. It, It becomes more important. And unless there's really compelling reasons to do otherwise, the court should respect the decisions of prior courts. And so, yes, it, it didn't surprise me that the reliance interest in stare decisis became a focal point of the Dobbs argument. Uh, and it was, in some respects, a focal point of Casey as well. But I actually think more so in the briefing than in the argument itself. Uh, in Casey, we, we spent a lot of time briefing stare decisis and the standards for reversing. But from my per- perspective, what I kept saying is uh, the rights protected in Roe are a fundamental right. If you look at the specific provisions of the Pennsylvania law, they had already been invalidated under that standard. So stick to that standard, which was a much more simple way of talking about the importance of you know sticking to precedent. But the briefs really went into great detail about uh, what standards to use and the, and the reliance interest. You were in the courtroom in 1992 in June when the justices issued the decision. So you argued the case in April of of 1992. So the wait was not as long as people are having to wait right now for the Dobbs decision. But what was it like to wait? And again, there was no Twitter. uh, There was no hitting refresh on the court's website at 10 a.m. You were just waiting for the phone call? No, actually, we knew the day it would be decided because there were no other cases left. 
So we were actually decided on the last day of the term and we were the only case decided on the last day of the term, which meant that that morning was one of the most incredible mornings I've ever, I, I arrived at the court and there were, you know, satellite dishes from media all over the world sitting in front of the court waiting for the opinion. So we knew it was going to come down right before an interesting part of, about Casey is my opponents were Ernie Preet, who was the attorney general of Pennsylvania at the time, and Ken Starr, who later became famous for his, um, well, yeah, his for, for many things. Uh, but the morning of the decision, Ken Starr, who was the solicitor general at the time, came up to me right before the justices came out on the bench and said, I've seen the opinion. It looks like the Court of Appeals has been validated. And I, well, actually, I'm not sure he said I've seen the opinion. He just said it It looks like the Court of Appeals has been validated. So he gave me a hint that the undue burden test or some something less than that uh, was going to be decided. You know, I had so prepared for for a complete overruling of Roe that it actually surprised me at the configuration of the justices and uh, the ruling of the court. And I don't think I fully understood the true impact of Casey until much later in the day. The Supreme Court reporters got it right away. It took me a lot longer because it was so against my expectation. But I think by the end of the day, I understood how significant it was that Justice Kennedy switched his vote and joined O'Connor and Souter in the joint opinion. And frankly, I, I had never seen a joint opinion before. So in that sense, it was quite an amazing, you know, an amazing uh, decision. And I think it took me a good part of the day uh, to understand its true impact. I was actually going to ask you that because it, it didn't come out for a little while, but it did come out that Justice Kennedy had initially been one of five votes to uphold all of the Pennsylvania law, and then switched his vote. The court ultimately reaffirms the core holding of Roe. What do you think are the chances that someone will change his or her vote in Dobbs? Not a chance in hell. Not a chance. This court, there is, I've been saying this for months, that uh, the court is going to use Dobbs to overturn Roe, and that there is no Justice Kennedy on this court the language of the draft opinion reaffirms that view in my estimation because it is language that reflects true ideologues on this question. Uh, if you compare the draft opinion that Justice Alito wrote versus the draft opinion that Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote, let me make sure I, I'm clear here. After my argument, the court retires to the, to the conference room, takes an initial vote. There were five justices at that time to overrule Roe, and Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote a draft opinion. That draft opinion is in Justice Blackmun's papers. So we saw what he did. And what he did is he never said the magic words that Roe versus Wade is no longer the law. He said, all we're doing is changing the standard of review. He obfuscated what the court was doing. It was a very minimalist opinion. It stuck straight to abortion. It really didn't discuss uh, uh, kind of how to determine what's a fundamental right or nothing about unenumerated rights and, and how they're problematic. None of the language in the 
Alito draft that allows you to easily see how this court is poised, not just to eliminate the fundamental right to choose abortion, but a host of other unenumerated rights. That wasn't in the Rehnquist decision. It was very minimalist, but it did reflect the five votes. Uh, we later learned that Justice Kennedy switched his vote, agreed to work with O'Connor and Souter to, to write the joint opinion upholding the hallmarks of Roe. You know, and in many respects, even Justice O'Connor, who had previously established this undue burden test, moved significantly. It was a much less intrusive undue burden test in Casey than the original one that she had included in dissenting opinions in Akron. And had the court, in my view, had the court become more progressive over the years, or had the lower courts interpreted the undue burden language in a progressive way, there was lots of room in Casey to essentially strike down restrictions on abortion that was would be later passed by the states. But I think the combination of the vague language, conservative courts, conservative state legislatures, meant that over the 30 years, the language of Casey really was an impediment to the ability of women to obtain abortions. But it didn't always have to be that way. I want to go back to something you just mentioned, which is the unenumerated rights, because there's been a lot of discussion about what overturning Roe and Casey would mean for other unenumerated rights, like the right to same-sex marriage, the right to contraception. And the Alito draft opinion says, in essence, that abortion is different. But the opinion in Casey described the decision to have an abortion as being quite similar to, in some ways, to the right to use birth control. So if Roe and Casey are overturned, do you think that some of those other unenumerated rights are going to be challenged? Absolutely. And we're already seeing state legislators move in that direction. So, for example, there have been some states that are trying to broaden the definition of abortion to include certain forms of contraception, whether that be the pill or the IUD or the morning after pill, none of which in, in my view are abortions because they operate before implantation. Uh, but that, you know, the, the magic moment of fertilization is when our opponents believe is, is key. So anything that happens between fertilization and implantation in, in their view is an abortion. Um, so yes, we're going to see them restrict contraception. We're going to see them once abortion quits being the critical wedge issue on the right, they're going to move on to other critical wedge issues. And we saw in 1992 to about 2000, right after Casey, when they stopped passing laws on abortion, because they were kind of devastated by the Casey decision, they thought they were going to win the whole ball of wax. When they didn't, what did they do? They started restricting gay marriage, started uh, really going after the rights of, of the LGBTQ plus Americans. So I expect that to happen again because it's consistent with their ideology. And frankly, I think there's a whole host of other rights, things like the right to make medical decisions later in life, you know, end of life care, the right to uh, in vitro fertilization, uh, all of which have been activities really frowned upon by uh, the religious right. I think those are really places we're going to see state legislative action, and we're going to see uh, challenges. 
that will go to the high court and, and frankly, uh, give them an opportunity to undermine those unenumerated rights as well. One last question, so definitely changing topic, but what was your reaction when you saw or heard about the leak of the opinion in Dobbs? You know, while I think it's bad for the court, I think that the the language in in the draft was so much worse for the court than the leak itself that I, you know, I, I, I didn't like the fact that the institution has been undermined. But I will say the decision in Roe itself was leaked. And it did not make it to the news because it was leaked to Time Magazine. Time Magazine agreed uh, not to print it for that time frame until the day that the decision was issued. It says as much about our the institution of the court and the institution of our media in terms of the different decision that Politico made here compared to Time Magazine 50 years ago. Yeah, times have changed. Exactly. Kitty Colbert, thank you so much for joining us. Thrilled to be here. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.